Hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz. And I am Chip Chantry. Ken, let's do this. Chip, you're back. I feel like it's it's been... I know, a- it's been a while. I apologize to all our throngs of fans. That <laughs> I'm sure you've gotten a lot of... I'm sure Ming's gotten a lot of uh, personal a mail sent to him about my absence. But uh, yeah, I've been on the road and I'm back now. Back for Christmas, which is nice. Well, well, so, uh, it's good to be missed, Ken. Thanks for holding down the fort. I didn't. I didn't actually say you were missed. I just said you were back. Great, great. Good. <laughs> Happy holidays. Um, we we have a guest today. I'm excited for this because uh, our guest today can answer a lot of questions that we have uh, about a pretty hot topic right now. Um, our guest today is a publishing partner at Primary Wave Music. So when you hear about artists selling their publishing rights, uh, our guest is part of the team that puts that together. Um, You may have just heard Julian Casablancas from The Stroke sold his catalog. Huey Lewis sold his catalog. Our guest was was part of that team that put that together. uh, our guest is uh, not only is he a publishing partner, but he has had a decades long career in music. He's actually a, a personal friend of mine. I've known him. I was trying to do the math, Dave. I was going back like it's got to be maybe 35 years at this point. Um, but when I met him, he was just a, a camp counselor at uh, Shenawanda in in the Poconos, a sleepaway camp for Jews. Uh Welcome, David Weitzman. Uh, th- thank you, Kenny. Uh, and nice to meet you, Chip. And yeah, man. yeah I mean, I, I met your I met your brother in 1988 uh, when we went on an Israel tour. Yep. Uh, and I think I met you when yeah, I definitely met you on the way back when I hung out in New Jersey for a couple weeks on the way back uh, from Israel. And uh, then, yeah, I was your I was a camp counselor at that camp in 1989. So I, I don't know what the math is to 2023, but it sounds like it's close to 35 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You got yeah. Uh, you and my brother decided to be counselors at, at my camp, um, which was uh, uh, that was a that was a fun summer. But I, I remember you used to so. You you got your start. You worked with a lot of different record labels. You worked with uh, Rick Rubin's uh, record label. You worked with Epitaph. You used to send my brother advanced copies of albums that um, we would get months ahead. I don't know if the statute of limitations is run out or if you could still get in trouble. But you used to <laughs> you used to send us copies. I remember you sent us. You sent my us. You sent my brother. The um, debut album by the Black Crows, you sent us Shake Your Money Maker, which I, I can still picture the like promo only, not for resale label on it. And um, and by the way, that was uh, by the way, David, I'm a, I'm a huge Crows fan. And that was that was the first CD I ever purchased was Shake Your Money Maker. Oh, wow. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, they were they were on American when I was there. So I'm sorry, can't go ahead. Yeah. I said they were they were on American when I was there and. It's funny that you mentioned their first album because when I was at American, I believe, and I was only there for about nine months because it was like an unpaid internship. And I worked for this guy, Mark Geiger, who uh, was one of the founders of Lollapalooza and uh, went on to do all kinds of great things. He ran music for William Morris for a long time, started a company called Artist Direct. Uh, But I think the, the album Amorica came out at that time when I was there. So uh, probably if I sent you shake, shake your moneymaker, it'd probably been out for a while, but it was probably just a promo copy. Maybe it was just the first time you heard it, but I think it'd been out for a while. Oh, well that. Yeah. Uh, if, if memory serves me correct. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought, cause I remember, unless, unless I'm just confused, unless my brother had, no, it was definitely, we'd got, Jordan had gotten the shake your moneymaker album months ahead of its release because i remember by the time it actually came out because uh uh jordan was um my brother was uh a bit of a dick back then so 
I still had to like go buy a copy. He didn't really like sharing, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember he's much, he's much nicer. And I know he's listening. He's much nicer now, but, but I remember, right. I remember like going out to the, to like Sam Goody or whatever record store to buy shake your money maker the day it came out. And I'd already known like every word. Oh, cool. to it. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I do remember the first time I saw the black crows. They, uh, they opened up for Robert Plant at the uh, Universal Amphitheater in LA, which is no longer a, a, a venue, but uh, that was a pretty cool show. Yeah, that was they. They got into some trouble with Robert Plant, if I remember correctly, didn't they? Was that the Budweiser um, tour where they got they were making fun of the beer uh, sponsorship? That no, nah, that was with ZZ Top. But I remember Chris Robinson. I think in an interview made a comment about Robert Plant using backing tracks or like doubling his vocals. Oh, like, I, I don't know anything about that. I was also fortunate enough to see them at the Greek theater, which they famously put up. They, they did oh, a Zeppelin Zeppelin. With they Jimmy played Page. All Zeppelin Page, set yeah, Jimmy Page. Page. That's a great album. And that was really cool because like they, you know, the Crows have two guitar players and Paige. So there's some of the songs like in my time of dying, where there's like, you know, a rhythm and a lead and an acoustic. Like, I don't think Zeppelin ever had like three guitar players on stage. So it was just Jimmy, you know? So like seeing the Crows of them, you could hear all the parts, like they're all three guys are playing. And I don't remember Jimmy actually playing that well at those shows. Like they, the, the Crows guys kind of really held it down. And uh, Chris Robinson did a pretty damn good Zeppelin lead vocal. You know, as as a true rock star that he is, but uh, it's funny that I've seen him with both, like the you know Plant and Page, but not together. It's yeah, been interesting. Too. Yeah. yeah, that was uh, that was an amazing tour. They only played a handful of dates. I I saw I saw them maybe four or five times on the East Coast, but uh, those shows were. Uh, yeah, I, musically, those those were some of the coolest concerts I, I ever saw in my life. Pretty, did, pretty awesome. Did you happen to read Steve Gorman's book? Do you know why that tour came to such an abrupt end? I did read the book, um, and I think I think Jimmy just like changed his mind one day or something, from what I remember. Like well, he decided he just didn't want to do it anymore. The, I think the story, according to Steve Gorman, the story goes that. Um, they were backstage for a late night appearance. Like, for, like maybe it was like the Conan O'Brien show or Leno or something like that. And uh -huh. they were due to play that night. And um, the tour was going really well. Um, and it was getting incredible reviews and people were really excited about it. So someone, uh -huh. someone at the Crows record company thought it would be a good idea to announce like, Hey, we should get, uh, we should get Jimmy page to produce a uh, couple songs on the new crows record to like, to keep the, keep the heat of that tour going. And right. they approached Jimmy page who uh, -huh. uh, they were like, Hey, would you not the label approached Jimmy page? Hey, would you consider producing a couple songs for these guys next album? And uh, Jimmy Page was like, yeah, I love these guys. They're a great young band. And right. uh, so Jimmy approached Rich Robinson backstage and was like, hey, you know, the label approached me. How would you like me to produce a couple songs on the new album, on your new album? And Rich Robinson said no. Oh, yeah, really? that's right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> apparently, you, apparently, you retain more from the book than I did. Um, yeah, well, you know, the Black Crows have never had a reputation as being easy, especially, <laughs> yeah. the, especially the relationship between the two brothers. And, um, you know, the Gorman definitely had a lot of scathing things to say about them in the book. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. He's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, the Black Crows, they're, you know, their latest tour that they've been doing. And, and I remember it was supposed to start and then COVID delayed it, but I think they, they did a bunch of dates that, you know, they're, they didn't hire any of the guys who were in the band before they no. just hired like sort of hired gun guys. Um, and probably that was just like to keep, you know, keep sort of old drama from bubbling up. Like they just like hired guys who could play really well. And we're like, 
we're doing this as black crows and you know i'm sure they probably were just salaried or whatever but you know obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of drama in that band like uh like most bands that have been together or been apart for a long time i mean it's, it seems like you know most bands that have been together 30 40 years it's like being married to three or four people and you know it's hard enough being married to one person so it's usually you know it personal issues yeah yeah yeah, that's like, a, yeah, like I said, they're one of my favorite bands. And it's like that meet your heroes thing where I was like, I don't know if I want to. I'm just going to keep an arm's length. If I ever have the chance, I'm just going to keep them the way I love. they were. Actually, my last my last show before the pandemic was just the Robinson Brothers acoustic. And they were incredible. Oh, cool. They were they were unreal. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I wound up seeing Tame Impala at the forum like a day or two before the world shut down. That was my last yeah. show before yeah. the pandemic. And I've actually seen them probably like a dozen times. One of my favorite modern bands. Yeah. I, I'm trying to, mine was the rack and tours. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. They play, played yeah. a little theater in the city and they, they were awesome. And then it was like just a couple of weeks later, I think you, you I actually, all, got to, I actually know Brandon Benson. He's a really nice guy. Oh, do you, he's got, yeah, um, he is, uh, I like his solo. I like his last solo record. I, I actually, through the tours, I, I just kind of worked backwards and started checking out right. some of his solo stuff. Uh, but he is also, uh, he's got a very funny social media presence. He's got, he's got a very funny Twitter. Yeah. I've been a, a fan of his solo works for a, a long time. Uh, I think he's put out especially his first few records. I really liked them. I like them all. And uh, I think with the rack and tours, you can really, to me, a lot of their songs are very like, it's like listening to the Beatles. Like, you know, which one is Lennon, you know, which one's McCartney yes, to Beatles yeah. song. And I feel like when you listen to rack and tours, you can listen to songs and be like, okay, Brandon wrote that. Jack wrote that. Yeah. But they share the publishing on all the songs. Yes. In the interest of like keeping that unit together kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and we're we're gonna get into that. We we do have a lot of questions on publishing. Um, one of one of the band. All right, so this I know I'm not getting wrong. I know you sent us. Um, uh, Sublimes was it their major league their their major label debut bef before it came out? Probably. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I I worked so I worked with Sublime for about a year before Brad died. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I got hired there because I was, so I was interning in American for free. And then I got this part-time job doing college radio promotions for Epitaph. And during my interview at Epitaph, like the, at the end, the, the guy who hired me, played me the rancid song, Time Bomb. And he's like, what do you think of this? I'm like, I love this song. Sounds like a hit to me. And they basically hired me and I started doing college radio a couple of days a week, literally making five bucks an hour at Epitaph. And at the time, Epitaph was like this label that like, you know, they, it, you know, punk was like having its moment at the time mm -hmm. and, you know, Rancid and Pennywise and no effects and all these bands would come out and they'd all go like top 20 in the, in the college music journal CMJ charts, which was my job. And it, it really wasn't that hard because everybody wanted these records and play them. So I had some friends at American who were like, Hey, what do you, how do you like doing that college radio stuff? And I was like, Oh, it's great. I get to talk to people about music and I get paid and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, you know, the band sublime has this label skunk and they need someone to promote their second record, Robin the hood at college radio. And I'm like, Oh, I've got 40 ounces. I love sublime. So I met when I'm meeting this guy, John Phillips, who had signed sublime and, um, you know, I met him at the, the Trocadero, the, the first, which is a club in LA. And the, it was the first night that Mike Tyson came back after being in prison and like knocked a guy out. Um, and it was just kind of a memorable night. I went up getting hired for, to work with Sublime. And uh, I, lo I, I loved Robin the Hood when I heard it. It was definitely different than 40 ounces. And uh, I promoted it at college radio and I could only get it to... 44 on the CMJ chart and all these epitaph records were going top 20. And I was, I was disappointed that I could do it, but everybody was ecstatic. They're like, wow, no, college, you know, Sublime's never done this good at college radio. And the way I pitched it was I said, you know, Robin the hood is like, um, 
it's like their weird stony second record, like psychedelic. It's kind of like, you know, the Beastie Boys made License to Ill mm-hmm. and then they made Paul's Boutique. Yep. And this is yeah. their Paul's yeah. Boutique. So I think that I think that intrigued people and got them to help listen to it. And uh, and so, yeah, I was working with them and, you know, we and I did some commercial radio with them, too. And, uh, you know, we they were they were making the sublime self-titled debut that came out eventually through MCA when I was there. And certainly we all heard the music, you know, as it was being made. And then there was, we had like a tape with the original order that had their version of I think it was Rostamon Vibration on the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we all thought, wow, this is a real progression for the band. A lot of the recording of it sounded a lot like, you know, how they sounded live. You know, that was really the goal they were aiming for with the Paul Leary productions. And then they, they smartly also hired uh, David Kahn to do the singles. And David Kahn had done like Cheryl Crow, and, but also done Fishbone. He'd done a, but he'd done a lot of commercial stuff and like what I got and doing time and, um, the song about the riots, April 29th, like, like he produced those and kind of polished them up. So they, they had like the punk rock cred of, of Paul Leary, but also like the commercial savvy of David Kahn's productions. And uh, yeah, I mean, so obviously I was exposed to that record and, and probably, you know, sent you guys a, something before it came out and, you know, it was a really, uh, you know, tragic that you know brad died you know i never even saw that record come out you know like like you know he had been literally married a week and had a one-year-old oh, and we and we'd all gone up the whole everybody who worked with man we all went up to the bay area to see um the band play because they were doing a little mini tour and i actually left la on a friday afternoon got stuck in horrible la traffic and was driving up with these two girls and we 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 probably could have seen the second half of the last show, which was in Petaluma, but we were staying in San Francisco and we're like, uh, we'll just, we'll just see them, you know, we'll, we'll see them tomorrow. You know, like I probably saw 30 sublime shows in a year, you know, yeah. like it was just like, we'd all, it was, it was, it was, and going to the shows was like, it was like when the Chili's played at MTV awards and they had like a hundred people on stage. Yeah. Like we were all just on stage having a, having a party, you know, <laughs> in sublime and play not every show, but a lot of shows. And, uh, so, you know, went to bed that night and then the next morning I got up and like went and hung out on the, the East Bay of, of, of the Bay Area and had lunch with my uncle and I was with my friend Mark and we went to like Rasputin's and Amoeba. We were buying vinyl and we picked up some beers to head back to my friend Blaine's house. who was the manager and we walk into the house and there's like, must have been like 30 people in Blaine's house and we were, we were all pumped up to go to a show that night, you know? And everybody was just stone silent. Like it was really weird walking in that house. And Blaine's brother just looks at me and he goes, you know, something bad happened to Bradley. You need to go talk to Blaine right now. And at that point I had like the, like, you know, you have like the devil and the angel on your shoulder. I'm like, my, my brain was like, okay, A, he's in a coma or B, he's dead. You know? Yeah. And uh, I walked into the room and Blaine was just, crying like a baby you know just crying his eyes out and like i just knew immediately he was dead you know and it's rough i mean we're all there you know and all you know you think you're going to a show and then like the leader of your whole universe you know was was dead you know yeah that it it was it was heartbreaking it was such uh I, i still remember my brother playing me the album for the first time and he was like, hey, you, you have to hear this. Dave says they're going to be huge. And then listening to it, just one, like all it took was one listen. And you were like, oh, this is just filled with some of the catchiest. Uh, some of those songs were so funny. Like they were catchy, but they were funny. There was punk. There was reggae. There was like it felt like a little hip hop. And, and, and it just felt like the... Like I was so excited for that record to come out and the tour to start and knowing that I'd get to see them. Um, yeah. Uh, and then it's, it's interesting. You, uh, you bring that up. Cause like I grew up in San Diego and like, there was always like ska and reggae around and punk and like grateful dead. And I got supposed to hip hop early and, you know, like sublime sound really encapsulated Southern California and all these things that were going on. And, you know, like, they really like 
you know, took the, took these different elements and made like their own bully bays, you know? Yeah. It was funny. Yeah. At one point I was working at the uh, epitaph and Sublime and two days a week and was working for uh skunk sublimes level three days a week. And there's epitaph at the time was, it was extremely punk rock. They didn't have um, the anti-label they hadn't put out, you know, they, the epitaph has put out all kinds of music, but that, and I think all of them had like a punk energy to them. But at the time it was only punk rock. This one kid who was very, sort of proto-punk looking, you know, he had the Mohawk and he had the, the Doc Martens and all that. He kind of pulls me aside one day. He's like, I don't understand why you, why you don't just work with us full time. I don't understand why you, you work with the band Sublime. They're not punk. They're not reggae. They're not ska. I don't get it. And I was like, exactly. Because <laughs> he, he, he didn't get it. Like he was, he, you know, he was very dogmatic in how he viewed music and clearly sublime didn't you know they they took all these different elements and made something unique out of it yeah there i there was something for everybody in that band I, you mentioned robin the hood like i remember my brother would always play 40 ounces to freedom i would always play robin the hood i was i was super into hip-hop at the time and robin the hood mm-hmm. felt like it had more it's like you said like more beastie boys more hip-hop elements to it uh, 40 ounces felt more punk, which was what my brother was, was super into at the time. Yeah. Well, 40 ounces had KRS one and waiting for my Ruka and some of the songs that had yeah. a lot of hip hop element, but I, you know, I, I, when I, I didn't mean that Robin the hood sounded more hip hop and it, it definitely had some elements of that. I meant more when I, when I referred to it as like Paul's boutique is just like, it was just like the weird departure yeah. of number two record. Yeah psychedelic stony just just different you know um you know sort of less commercial leaning you know actually uh some of the songs on that like all you need and uh i saw red and some of those uh a lot of those were recorded were actually funded by epitaph um <laughs> who were looking at signing them but they had heard that you know the band was problematic and that there was drugs and all that and they eventually decided not to sign sublime um and they were able to keep, you know, the band was able to keep the demos, but that's a lot of the studio recordings from that were actually funded by Epitaph and things could have maybe turned out, you know, they could have been an Epitaph band. Oh, wow. How much of that is when you're deciding to like, I, I don't know if you specifically, but when somebody's deciding to sign a band, how much does that come in of like, look, this is their talent. This is their output. We see potential. And then the backstage stuff, the the drugs or the other issues that come up. Is that a, is that a big factor in deciding? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think that like look, sex, drugs and rock and roll is like a thing, right? Yeah. Right. Right. But, but, um, I, I think, you know, especially if you, you know, if you're thinking about investing considerable amounts of money in somebody, and you know, you think that they might, you know, not be able to perform or, or worse die or, or whatever you, you know, you might go, well, maybe I'll invest some money in someone else who seems like they have less problems, but you know, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, I feel like with a lot of great artists, they, you know, they, they come out, they're inspired, they do some drugs and it's like, you know, like how, what, what, like the doors name their group, the doors, because the doors are perception. Right. And yeah. sometimes, you know, the drugs open up doors to creating different art hearing a melody different especially in melody and instruments with with drugs with rhythm sections not so good because they lose their timing (laughs) but um you know and and then then but then the drugs become a crutch because they they did something different with them and really the talent was in them and maybe the drugs help unlock them but then a lot of people get hooked on the drugs and they it sort of stifles their creativity yeah, it seems it seems like there's it seems like there's a window there where where the artist probably thinks that they're getting their most creative output from the drugs. Um, yep. But that window, I'm guessing, shuts pretty quickly. And, and, you know, so. and then it goes from, oh, this is going to be my muse and I'm only doing this to to write better licks or whatever to uh like you said like oh like now i now i have to have this and and the input's going to get less creative yeah uh, i think so no so uh anyways yeah did i answer your sublime question you asked (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah definitely 
Um, so let's uh, so let's talk about let's talk about what you're doing now with uh, with primary wave. Yep. So you hear you hear this stuff on the news all the time. It's very hot right now. Bruce Springsteen just sold his publishing rights. Um, first off, he sold he sold everything. He sold his master recording income too. Okay, so what? Let let's start with publishing. I don't. I honestly don't like. You keep hearing it, and I have no fucking clue what this means. Once okay. you purchase an artist's publishing rights, what are you able to do with the songs? Okay, so I guess for probably a lot of people that are watching this, they probably maybe I don't even know if they understand what publishing is. And basically, when you hear a song like on the radio, uh. I always like to think of the song and the recording is 200%. So hundred percent is the lyrics and melody, the actual songwriting that's publishing the sound recording, which used to be known as a master tape. And now it's mostly in a computer is the recording and record companies usually own recordings. Publishing companies usually own songs. Uh, and ask your question, what we can do after we buy a song. Uh, I mean, there's a ton, but you know, the, the big ways that publishers make money, there's sort of three different revenue streams. There's uh, mechanicals, which uh, now is part of streaming, which, but also like traditionally it was when, when there was a record sold or uh, a download or a CD, there's a mechanical rate that's paid per song. And it actually came from sheet music on pianos back in the day were mechanicals. That's, mm-hmm. that's they're literally mechanicals that you would turn. Uh, and that's how the mechanical payment came in. And, and, like in the, in the U S in most countries that is set up by uh, governmental or quasi governmental agencies. Uh, the other thing that the other two are performance, which there's all these companies like ASCAP and BMI and things like that, that collect performance income and performance comes from songs being played on the radio. Um, there's a performance a- aspect to DSPs like um Spotify, there's performance income paid uh, from television uh, and movies. XUS, actually in the US, they don't pay performance in a theater, which is a, a weird thing. Actually, the, the theater owners went to Congress, or actually the, the, the film studios went to Congress in the 1930s. And they said, look, we, we pay for these composers to put music in our films. And uh, we don't want to pay, we, we own the theaters, we don't want to have to pay twice. And Congress agreed and gave them this exception, which is totally unapplicable now because Warner Brothers and Universal and Sony and, all, and the film companies don't own the theaters anymore. But theater owners don't have to pay performance in the U.S. It's, you know, you know, U.S. Oh, is just sort of Wild West. And, yeah. and then, you know, so it's a weird one. Um, and then the other big area that's sort of tied in with what I just mentioned about part of performance is synchronization. So. When you, if you own, you want to use music in a commercial, a film, a television series, internet, you have to go to the to the song owner, which is usually a publisher, and the um, sound recording owner, which is usually a record label, and you have to get a, you, you submit a sync request, and then we quote a sync fee, and that's, we charge for that. So, like, if, if we have a song that's in, like, white Lotus or a Marvel movie or anything. We get a synchronization fee and then we get the performance every time it airs on TV or in a film theater X us. So those, those are the big uh, areas of music publishing. How we earn is, is publishing. uh, I'm sorry, performance, mechanical and synchronization, Um, you know, and, and a lot of the deals that we're doing a primary wave and certainly some of the other competitors, we're buying a lot more than just publishing rights too. Like we buy publishing uh, and we also buy the performing rights writer share and we buy sound exchange rights and we buy uh, sound recording royalties or sound recordings. Uh, and as a company, we have a, a very, a bit of a different philosophy than most uh, most companies that are competitors want to buy hundred percent. They don't want to give you approval rights and, and uh, they don't really want to have a relationship with you afterwards. Primary way we're extremely artist friendly company. We normally want to buy a majority share. Um, and we want to 
really have a fruitful relationship with the artist, the heir, their team, whoever it is going forward. You know, they've got all this institutional knowledge. Uh, also, I should mention, we, you know, we usually either buy in or represent people for name and likeness. So we do a lot of things outside of a traditional music publisher when it comes to name and likeness, branding, marketing, digital strategy, a lot of things that record companies or managers traditionally did, we do. Uh, and we literally two thirds of primary wave employees work in those value add departments. Um, and, and part of the reason we want these people to, the sellers to have a relationship with us is we want them to actually share in the upside of, of us turning a dollar into $3. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And, and so like, you know, for instance, we just, we have a Whitney Houston movie coming out next week uh, called I want to dance with somebody. Yep. And we bought a 50% interest in the Whitney Houston estate a few years ago. And first thing we did was he hired a, we found a, a version of her singing higher love uh, in the, in the, in the, in the vaults. And we, and it was sounded great, but it was a little dated. So we hired Kaigo to remix it became a Grammy da- nominated dance hit. There's been a bunch of big sinks on it. We did a Whitney hologram in Vegas. Um, we did uh, like Funko dolls and, and all kinds of stuff. And we, we have this movie coming out. We have a, a, a cosmetic line based on the cosmetics that she actually wore. We have a fragrance line based on the fragrances that she actually wore, you know, put on. Uh, and we've already, I can't remember if, if the, I think we're three or 400% over the earnings. So that, so their 50% is making way more than it did before as is ours. And that doesn't even take into account the film yet. So, you know, most of our competitors, they, they think of a win as like getting a big synchronization, like licensing a song into a film, you know? And then they're like, woohoo, you know, and like for us, we've got, we've got a great sync team and we do that. But like, you know, for us, the wins are like making this film and, and doing the remix and doing the hologram and doing the consumer products and all those kind of things. And, and frankly, I think we're so far ahead of the competition when it comes to putting together a five-year plan and executing on it and having the vision and having the team to do it that, uh, you know, if people really care about their legacy and really want these things to happen, uh, you know, we're a really, really good option. Certainly a lot of the industries are paying attention and some of our competitors are talking the same game and, you know, who knows, maybe some of them will be affected at doing these kind of things. But I think a lot of them, it's fairly, let's just say they haven't, it's, it's, it's not, it's not proof in concept yet. Right. We're very proof in concept of a lot of, of doing this for a lot of uh, our properties. And certainly the Whitney Houston case study is a great example. And when you're doing all this for Whitney, all these avenues for Whitney Houston, you're, you're in commu- communication with her estate and like with the, the absolutely those, everything yeah. we do, they approve. And we're, we're partners with Pat Houston who runs the estate, mm-hmm. uh, I believe is Whitney's aunt. And uh, yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And I mentioned earlier that a lot of uh, companies um, don't want to give broad approval rights. We give very pro- broad approval rights. Even if we, even if uh, someone sells us a hundred percent, we're, we're generally, you know, going to give them approvals, on, you know, and, and, and we really try to also focus on like, you know, if we're going to do syncs or marketing, we'll try to find out what the artist cares about, you know, like one of the artists they did a deal with, like, cause it was vegan. So like we would never pitch him to McDonald's, but we were like, one of our marketing guys was like, Hey, maybe we can get you to sponsor, um, you know, um, bitchin sauce at whole foods which is like a kind of a spicy hummus kind of thing that that's mm-hmm. great for vegan you know and like you always try to like really find out what makes people tick like you know one time i was having a, a conversation with julian casablancas before we did that deal mm-hmm. and um and my and larry who's the chairman of my company and and you know i, I asked julian so i heard that he was particular about sinks I was like, I hear you don't like sinks so much. Like, no, I love sinks, but it's, it's gotta be, you know, it's gotta fit the strokes. It's gotta be like cool and mysterious. And, you know, he's like, I don't ever want my music in a Pepto-Bismol commercial. Right. Right. And we're we're like, of course, we'll never, we would never pitch you for Pepto-Bismol. That wouldn't be good for you. Even if it was a big check, like that's not, we always look at these things as a a long-term view to the brand. You'll, you'll, you'll never see 
primary way of pitching the strokes for, for Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> right, for, for Pepto-Bismol. And now, now I, I don't know if you can speak specifically to Julian Casablancas, but in a case like that, is he selling or, or dealing with his solo stuff and or the, the strokes stuff? I can, I can speak to that. So yeah. we bought a majority interest in a lot of his strokes assets. Um, okay. And he carved out his uh, his works outside the strokes. Okay. He, he wanted to separate church and state. And yeah. um, that was his prerogative. And uh, I, I love everything Julian's done. I think he's a, a renaissance man kind of artist and a great front man, a great yeah. songwriter. And, you know, I like his label. I like the... I like the Boyds. I like the song he did with Daft Punk. Uh, he's yeah, that was a real I, that was that a was real really good, good song. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and now so, the other know. guys from the Strokes are they have their rights though too? So like, if do you sort of have to yeah, stick the, with right, them? the rights that they own? Uh, and certainly they're in some legacy deals, but uh, they they retain their rights um, and they could actually be beneficiaries of things that we pitch for the Strokes. Um, that you know because they they still own it. Yeah. So, yeah. so Dave, when you say, um, I just want to make sure I understand this. So when you say like, even if you own a hundred percent of the artist publishing rights, you mm-hmm. will, you will still go to them for approval. So does that mean yep. I'm just using this mm-hmm. as, so let's say you own a hundred percent of Huey Lewis's rights. Um, mm-hmm. and somebody wants to put one of his songs in a movie you're still going to approach Huey Lewis about, Hey, you know, this director wants to use your song in a movie. How do you feel? And this is what the movie is. This is what the scene is. Yeah, or- yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we, our attitude is these people have earned the right to, to, you know, say yes or no to where their legacy is going to be exploited. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 they're, it's part of their soul. They, they created the art. Oh, that's great. So that, that sounds like, that sounds like a home run for the artist, which is like, Hey, yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, look, there, there, there are sort of kind of limits to that. Like if someone doesn't say yes or no, within a certain amount of time, it could be deemed approved mm-hmm. or something like that. But um, like, we always want to get their, their buy-in. We don't want to do anything that artists don't want us to do, you know? And, and that's that, you know, as I keep saying, we're artist friendly company. So if we keep doing things that are that the artists like, they're going to go tell their friends, and then their friends are going to come to us too, you know. And and yeah. you know, like I said, they they've earned the right. So you know, I, I always think to myself, like I don't I don't play an instrument. I can I mess around a couple on a couple things, but I'm not good. I, I have never written a song in my life. You don't want to hear me sing, <laughs> um, you know. But I've had an amazing career um, because of the art you know, because of the artist. So I always try to keep that front and center and, you know, it's, it's, you know, you treat the artist, right. You're going to keep having a great career. Well, and I would assume too, because, you know, you see sometimes where, you know, there's whether white Lotus or whatever it is, some big new show that pulls a song from 25 years ago and makes the, uh, you know, the, uh, running up that, the yeah, hill from yeah, stranger, stranger, stranger things. Like uh-huh. that's just such a, I mean, such a, I would assume such a huge boon for, uh, uh, why am I forgetting her name right? Kate, Kate Bush. Bush. Kate Bush. No. You know, uh, is, I, ha, have you seen any, do you, do you have any examples of like something that like you were really proud of or uh, like a, just uh, a, a use of a song or, or whatever it might be that like, whether it's just like kickstart started somebody again or just sort of work perfectly in that moment that everybody was really mm-hmm. happy about. That's a great, that's a great question. And it's funny you mentioned White Lotus and I mentioned earlier because probably because we just had a marketing meeting and, uh, in episode six of White Lotus, when one of the uh, prostitute girls was singing at the piano, it was mm-hmm. actually a song from one of our catalogs that was a number one 52 years ago. So really? uh, kind of had a nice little renaissance there. But one example that you brought up when, and I mean, Primary Wave's got a million, but I'm thinking personally, because I used to music supervise for 10 years. One of my favorite uh, moves I ever made was I was working on the show Robin Big. And there was a scene where um, uh, Big, he got, uh, he had a Pinto and he took it into the shop and he had it flat blacked out, matted out and cool rims and all this. And then he's driving the Pinto back and he's all proud. This guy's giant. He was like 300, 350 pounds and barely fitting in this Pinto. And uh, (laughs) I picked this song up, Be Thankful for What You Got by William Devon. 
And it's got the lines of diamond in the back, digging the scene with the gangster lean, you know, that yeah. whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I put, I put that in and everybody in the office, in the post-production office started freaking out. They're like, what is that song? <laughs> and it just got a lot of like uh, attention sort of in, you know, for that circle. So I mean, not, not a show as big as white Lotus, but, and, sure, and but I yeah. wouldn't say Robin, they really had that kind of cultural moment where it hits so many people, but that was one I was particularly proud of. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I got into doing music supervision for 10 years because I was I really was like interested in, you know, score and, and source material that was in television and film. I was really paid attention to it. And I thought I, before that I had done A&R, read sequence records and stuff. And I thought, you know, whenever I was sequencing a record, I was, you know, you know, a lot of good records when you, on album and you listen to it, it, it tells like a story like, you know, maybe it's a fast song and then a slow song. And then, you know, just, you want to, you want to have like nice tempos and, and you want to sequence it right where it, it feels like a, a real piece of art. And I thought I could apply uh, sort of that kind of a concept to television shows. And uh, you know, so I, I kind of put that to work. Matter of fact, when I did the show, Robin big, um, I, I, I watched the pilot and Robin big to me, they were very hip hop, but there was something about them that seemed older than hip hop, like kind of more soul. And uh, I got this idea to sort of watermark the show by putting in classic funk and soul that had been sampled. So he's like Curtis Mayfield, move on up. And people are like, mm-hmm. why do I like that? I'm like, because well, Kanye sampled it. <laughs> like the meters and Funkadelic and all this stuff in. And I never actually told my executive producer that, of my concept because I thought they, I thought they would think it was too cute. Like, why are you trying to do that? But after a while, uh, my main executive producer, Jeff Tremaine, he's like, you're using a lot of old, cool, old funk and soul in the show. It's really working. And I was like, yeah, I, I know. You know, so kind of like, I still never told them that I had this watermarking concept, but, uh, but yeah. So I, I kind of, I felt like that it kind of helped tell the story. And we used a lot of other kind of music in that show too, but I used a, a lot of sample source material very on purpose. I'm glad you explained that because I am so... I am so intrigued with how music supervisors come to their decisions. When when I'm watching a show, if I'm watching White Lotus or I'm watching any show, my phone is always right next to me. I will Shazam every single song in the show if it isn't one I'm familiar with. I think my wife gets so annoyed at me because I do, I do the same exact, <laughs> same exact yeah. I yeah. will Shazam. Well, and then this season of White Lotus, you know, the music supervisor purposely chose a lot of Italian music, a lot of like Italian remakes of, mm-hmm. of you know, sort of Western or American uh, English music. Uh, actually, the song that uh, wind up getting used in season six, uh, the girl sang in English. Uh, and there wasn't that many English language songs in, in that season. So that was very purposeful. And <clears throat> sorry, I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, obviously the, the, show, the season was shot in Sicily. So they went very Italian. Sure. Yeah. But I think just like Ken, that would before I even knew that was a job when I was a kid, I was like, that's what I want to do when I grow up. I went because I wasn't that I can play a little bit of guitar. I'm not that great. But it's like I want to pick the songs that are, are in there. I think it's such a great cool. because it you was, really are a part of that creative. I mean, just that feel of of, of create even Robin Big, like creating a, a vibe for it, like just as much as the writing or the you know, editing oh, yeah. it might be for a TV show. It's like the score is such yeah, a huge, it's, it's almost huge like that. totally. And like on that show. Like I'd worked on Jackass and Wild Boys already with uh, Jeff Tremaine and some of the people. And and so like in on, on all, all those shows, we used everything from like punk rock to hip hop to classical music. Just, you know, it's very eclectic. And um, Robin Big, I kind of tried to narrow it a little bit, even though we were still eclectic. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I picked most of the music on that show and most scenes I would submit like 10 songs to my editors, you know, so seen you know maybe they liked one better than i did and mm-hmm. i usually say this is my favorite my second favorite my third favorite and uh, you know some of those other people would have ideas too and like uh ruben fleischer who was the the show creator on that he turned me on to like hyphy music from oakland he turned me on to b club music from baltimore uh like he had great taste jeff has great taste like i, I picked most of the music on that but some of the ideas would come from other places and you know, you kind of got to lead your ego a little bit at the door. You know, sometimes other people has a better idea. Yeah. You know? oh, sure. like, yeah. Even even the, uh, the be thankful for what you got. Um, 
somebody else wanted to use Lowrider in that scene. And I love the song Lowrider, but I thought it was just kind of played out. And I thought the Be Thankful for What You Got was like a more interesting, dusty gem of a choice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 interesting hearing how much work goes into that, because that's one of those jobs where I'm so convinced I could do better than whoever is picking the music. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's got to be. That's got to be easy, but it's, it's, I mean, it's like how people, you know, look at like stand up, like what we do, where people are like, yeah. ah, that's, you just get up there and just talk. It's easy. Talking in a microphone. That's yep. And also, yeah. you know, there's just, it depends how political things are too. Sometimes there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Sure. You know, like I might have a great idea and somebody else overrides it. Like I did this one show that I wasn't really going to do. That uh, was called, uh, The Beckham's Coming to America. Mm-hmm. That was originally going to be a six part series. And they only had enough source material to make one hour, <laughs> like a one hour special. <laughs> it, just, it just wasn't that good. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to do it because I thought it was not a good show. Uh, and I tried to generally pick quality projects when I was music supervising, but the executive producer and one of the other producers were people I'd worked with in the past. And they're like, we need your help. And I was like, okay. So in the course, they gave me a terrible budget. And I had to like call in all these favors to get music in cheap for like a prime time major network special way below market. And um, they had a, a song at the end where they used, it was a project from one of the guys in blink angels, to airwaves. Mm-hmm. And it was like this big sounding song, which I think Travis Barker was playing drums and they courted like a lot of money on it. And they, they said, Hey, can you find something cheaper there? And try to find some cheap things that like, you know, can compete, but that was just a, really good sounding song just really fit this scene where like the beckhams are arriving at the airport it's like triumphant and and so then they wound up using that song and they paid way more for that one song than all the other music i put in the show and i had done i pulled in all these favors to to beg people to use use your use their music cheaply Mm -hmm. and then they just turn around and just spend a bunch of money on one song and they said they didn't have the budget i was like what (laughs) So, you know, you know, so it was, it was like uncomfortable for me because, you know, I just said really. And then does that get back to the other artists that you got favors from too? Yeah. Well, maybe it will now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, did, <laughs> yeah. it didn't air, right? What? Did, it didn't air? You, it, or they, oh, or no, they, it aired. It aired. I'm oh, they did. They, they, they made it. They made it. Maybe a one story hour. never came out until now. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but I think there's a lot of really good music supervisors out there doing great work and, uh, uh, you know, I did it for like 10 years and it was, it was, uh, it's very gratifying in a lot of ways. Like you pick a song and a month later it's airing all over the world, you know, yeah. and you're getting feedback from people and you're like, wow, cool. People liked my idea, you know? And, you know, it's interesting when I started working in publishing and, and acquiring catalogs, um, it's, it's not as instant gratification. A lot of times it takes years to get a deal done, you know, every once in a while sure. I, I have a conversation and, three, four months later, a deal's done. But um, a lot of times it's like, I call somebody up and I'm like, Hey, would your, you know, call up a manager or a lawyer. I say, you know, would your client be interested in talking to us about a partnership or a sale or what have you? And they go, no. And I keep calling them for like two, three years. And finally they say, yeah. And then sometimes the deal process is complicated and it can take longer than two or three months. So uh, I, I had to learn to be patient. And I'm, oh, if you talk to my kids and said, David's learned anything about being patient, they'd be like, no, my dad's the most impatient person I've ever met. <laughs> and my wife would probably say the same thing. And uh, certainly being a parent also taught me some patience. There, I mean, there's, I yeah. I feel like I've learned something. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, it definitely taught me the same. Um, I just I want to rattle off a couple names, a few names of the artists you represent. And and um, so you guys. So Primary Wave represents Prince, Bob Marley, James Brown, Stevie Nicks, Whitney Houston, like you mentioned, Smokey Robinson. I can't even imagine what Smokey Robinson's catalog has got to be worth. Huey Lewis, Ray Charles, Alice Cooper, Def Leppard, Burt Bacharach. Bing Crosby, Andre 3000. I mean, it's literally, there's almost too many to name. Um, (laughs) Who, so here's my, so 
Springsteen sold his catalyst. So he sold everything for 300 million, I think. I think it was 550. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I think that's what it said in the press. I think it was 550. Okay. I I don't don't have have personal knowledge, but I've read the music press. So who do you think, like, who, first off, who's still out there? Because it seems like every day you turn on the news, someone else has sold their publishing. Dylan did it. Yeah. Who else is still out there that, like, that hasn't? I, I, Jagger Richards. Um, they own some, I mean, I, 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 I kind of feel like if I start rattling off people who haven't sold, it's giving other people ideas. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So no, I, I would, no, I would, I would, I would go into that. Yeah. Tommy no, no, no. two-tone. <laughs> Tommy two-tone. <laughs> no, I, I was just wondering who you thought was like, the, I, I, of course that makes sense. I, I was wondering who you thought was like the, the white elephant. Uh, at, at this point, because so so many uh, titans. Of well, music look, I, I think it's. I think most people know that Paul McCartney, you know, owns his mm-hmm. stuff post the Beatles. Yeah. Um, you know, he's got MPL production, MPL communications, and he's actually bought a lot of other people's um, music. And you know, look, Paul yeah. McCartney is you know got more number ones than anyone in num- in history. Uh, is arguably looked at as the great as one of the greatest songwriters of all time, if not yeah. the greatest. Although a lot of people would say Dylan. Yeah. Um, Paul McCartney is also known as the wealthiest musician in the world. I doubt that Paul McCartney would ever sell the assets that he has, you know, retained and acquired. And you know, he's also famously was really pissed off when he gave uh, Michael Jackson the yes. idea to buy publishing and, and he turned <laughs> yeah. around and bought the yeah. Lennon McCartney songs from the Beatles. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that's a secret. Uh, no. I think he'd probably be at the top of any, everybody's list if they have the yeah. wherewithal the money to buy it and the relationships. So that's one. I mean, I, I don't think it, I don't think you can top the Beatles. No, 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 probably not. No. Um, all right. Well, listen, Dave, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. I, I know you got to get back to work. This was, I, I don't know if, if it was fun for you, but this was super interesting for us because Chip and I actually, we talk about this shit all the time off air. Yeah, we could have talked for hours. Yeah, this is this is great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, this was, this was totally fun for me and I'm uh, happy to come on again, especially if you, you know, you want to talk about other things, that, yeah. you know, specifically or, you know, little segments, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm always open to that. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of <clears throat> mystery around, um, you know, the sort of publishing world. And certainly it's been really interesting to me uh, as someone who's, you know, I've been sort of in this acquisition space now for about 15 years. And for the last few years to see, Bowie, Paul Simon, Dylan, Springsteen, Stevie Nicks, others, all the stuff making mainstream press. Yeah. And seeing my business in the mainstream press has been uh it's been like a sea change. It's been interesting. And and certainly the the size of the deals is is, is really and and the and the 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 gravity of the artist has been huge, you know, and Certainly a lot of things came together over the last few years with, you know, the the music business has been in growth mode, like publishing and sound recording income has been growing 10% year over year or more for like six, seven years now. Uh, So most investors can't get that kind of return um, buying almost anything, you know? And music's a fairly non-correlated asset class. Like people, need to listen to music when they're celebrating or when they're crying in their beer, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of my old bosses, you say that, you know, the only things that were recession proof are God, God and booze, but you know, music has been too. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and, and uh, you know, and then interest rates were low and a lot of people got really interested in, in buying these kind of assets. And, you know, Larry Mistel, the chairman of my company, you know, he's been doing it now, you know, we the primary ways around 16 years. So he was really ahead of the curve. Um, so yeah, it's just been really interesting to see how it's changed and it's going to be interesting to see how things continue, uh, especially now that money is much more expensive. Yeah. And, and frankly, a lot of people that have been buying don't have the vision that primary wave has 
to turn that dollar into three dollars. They're like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna buy catalogs and we're gonna put them in a drawer. And because there's been legislation that's been good for songwriters, like the Music Modernization Act and the copyright board decisions and decisions in Europe. So legislation and then the increase in streaming where, you know, Spotify opened in India and Latin America is a huge territory now for streaming. And also they're like, okay, we're going to, just because of the proliferation of streaming and legislation, our dollar is going to be worth a dollar 20, you know, and, and they're probably right. You know, they're probably right that they, they buy at a certain price now and it's going to be worth more later. Maybe they want to exit. Maybe they don't. Yeah. But uh, a lot of them just don't have the vision that we do to like, Hey, we're, we're, we're buying these things because we know what to do with them. You know, we're going to make right. a movie. We're going to make a, a, a documentary. We're going to make a Broadway production. We're going to create consumer products and, and really, you know, meaningfully change, you know, uplift the brand and the story and, and all that. And it's just so, you know, it's been interesting to see, you know, the competitors and some of them are these funds that are just buying and, you know, I don't, I don't know what their long-term plans are. And, you know, we have a long-term plan that we're sticking to, um, well, it, I don't know if I'm I don't know if I'm rambling here. No, it, yeah, that's great. It, it it sounds like most important. You touched on this earlier. I think most importantly, it sounds like you're preserving the artist's legacy. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, which is cool. You know, which is a very cool thing to do. Shift the story. I mean, one of the things that we bought in the last year was we bought the uh, bought a partnership in the Bing Crosby estate, and you know, for probably a lot of people, Bing Crosby doesn't sound that cool but you know he was like the first multimedia superstar and his version yeah. of white christmas is probably the according to wikipedia it's the biggest selling single of all time and i was going to say this time of year has to be has to be crazy yeah yeah and we have a lot of things we want to do with bing crosby and i think most companies wouldn't have the the vision to say yeah we're gonna do all these kind of initiatives with Ben Crosby where, you know, that might be our next case study after Whitney Houston. I I have an idea of what you can do with Ben Crosby and I want you to hear me out because it's going to, it's going to sound off the wall. Okay. A Christmas duet with David Bowie. Ah, I'm listening. I'm listening. (laughs) Didn't, didn't Bowie, I mean, you're, you're laughing because did that already happen? Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, yeah. Little drummer little boy. Drummer boy. That's right. That's right. That's right. I was like, wait a minute. Wait. A minute. <laughs> they did shtick. <laughs> don't you don't you remember yeah. the vid? It, it it's like completely. I want to say it's completely like coked out of his gourd. Yes. Uh, yeah, station to station era. David Bowie. It's amazing. Meeting with an. Uh, I think he passed away just a few weeks later. Like it was Bing. Like at the very tail end of his life. And they that video. I watch that video every single Christmas, many it's, times. The interaction between the two of them is so bizarre. It's wild. But then when they actually sing "Little Drummer Boy," it's it's amazing. It's one of my yeah. favorite Christmas songs. I'm cool. I'm I'm still bummed that we didn't get the Bowie catalog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been. Uh, did Did you see? Um, did you watch? Uh, the new the the new doc. Did you see Moon Age Moon Daydream? Age? I have not watched it yet. I heard it's great. It's so amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I I'm, I'm still gutted that uh, Bowie and Prince died in the same year. Yeah, yeah that was couple, that was a couple, couple of my favorites. Yes, yeah, same. That was rough. Bowie had me. Bowie had me reeling. Um, and I still can't believe I work for a company that you know we own a significant portion of Bob Marley and Prince because I mean that just takes me back to being like 14. Yeah, I literally, sure. used to, literally used to go camping with my friends. I guess we were 16 by then because we had our own cars. But we would like sit around the campfire, and one of my friends would break out the guitar, and we'd like sing Prince songs and stuff like that. You know, it's just like <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I know. So it, it's, it's amazing. Wild. That, yeah, and I, you know, I think we're going to do a lot of really interesting things with the Prince estate, especially now that it's out of probate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward. Time. I'm looking forward to seeing that. All right, David. Thank you so much, Chip. Thank you. Happy yeah. you're back. Any anything yeah. anything you want to promote? Thanks anything again. Uh, yeah, just, just you know, follow me at Chip Chantry on uh, socials. How about you? Um, this Friday, December twenty third. I'm headlining Laugh It Up in Poughkeepsie, and you can go to laughitup.net for tickets. And uh, the twenty eighth, I'm headlining the Stress Factory in New Brunswick. Come out and say hi. 
And uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>